Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to liveasknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. We talk to you all the time, all the time about the Internet of Things and trying to stay away from the cloud and those sorts of things and the privacy damage that it may do inside of your home or to your information if if you're not being aware of that. Well, there's a new tool coming on the market to help us with this. It's called it's called Leaky Pick. Now, Leaky Pick is placed in various rooms around your house, and essentially what they've done is they've constructed this device out of a pie. And um, they've paired it with uh, with a small little speaker. And the small little speaker emits sounds from time to time. And then at the same time that it's emitting those sounds, it monitors network traffic. And so the idea here is that if you have a device that sits idle all day long, and all of a sudden it hears a noise, and now all of a sudden it has some traffic to send on the internet, well, that just might be a device that's sending information about your house or sending audio from your house. And so this device was originally designed as a way to try to help people understand what the Amazon Alexas of the world and what all of these other smart devices are actually sending about our houses. Of course, when the engineers came up with this, they ran into a couple of hurdles right off the bat. First of all, most of the traffic is encrypted, which means you don't really know for sure that it's an audio packet. You're just really, you're kind of guessing and you're just kind of hoping that um, if you can correlate the time that a noise happened with the time that network bursts happened, that you can kind of get an idea. Of course, that's going to lead to some false positives. The second obvious problem with this is, of course, that there is no one master list of Internet of Things, right? Every time you turn around, there's some other Chinese company or some other American company popping up uh, using some of the same similar technologies to accomplish some of the same things under a different name. And so trying to keep up with these things can be very difficult. Now, the $40 prototype um, is is what they're using. Uh, LeakyPick also has the ability to test devices for wake-up word false positives. That, that is to say, when you don't use the proper wake-up uh, word, does your voice assistant still activate and still send information uh, back home? And so far, the researchers found that 89 words that unexpectedly caused Alexa to stream audio back to Amazon. Two weeks ago, a different researcher published more than 1,000 words or phrases that produced false triggers that caused the device to send audio back to the cloud. Now, I I, I mentioned this as part of our pick segment because I, I think this kind of technology is going to be absolutely critical in the fight against uh privacy unaware devices or devices that are are surreptitiously taking audio video information about your home and sending it back um, to to massive companies for the purpose of of data mining and researching um, but I also bring it up because this is just a really cool uh, project that has come out of a raspberry pi 3b 
And I, I submit to you that if you didn't have the ability to just go buy a PAM 8403 amplifier, if you didn't just have the ability to go grab a, a, a little speaker and, and, a, and a TP-Link USB dongle and a $50 Raspberry Pi and plug all of this stuff together and say, hey, send this tone and then watch for this device to send network traffic. I mean, that's a thing that's pretty easy conceptually speaking, but it's not even that project doesn't even get off the ground. If things like the Raspberry Pi don't exist, if things like open Wi-Fi dongles, um, such as the ones that TP-Link don't exist, it wouldn't happen if we didn't have access to generic parts that people can just buy and put together. So I don't believe this is a product yet. Obviously, it's very early, uh, early stages. And I don't know that uh, Leaky Pick is going to be the device that keeps us all safe, but it's, it is the first of its kind. It's the first device of a generation, I believe, of devices that will that will follow that will help us audit what these companies are doing and what they claim that they're doing. And I thought that was interesting. And so uh, we decided to highlight it here on Ask Noah tonight. Again, the phone lines are open, 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. Of course, you can join us in our interactive um, riot room. Uh, the address is Noah's booth, matrix.linuxdelta.com. Um, our... Our uh, software pick tonight is a app called Wallset. Now, you, if you use uh, your desktop for any period of time, uh, one of the first most exciting things you can do on a fresh install is bless the install by giving it a wallpaper that's going to give that install meaning and, and, and give that computer its character, right? But of course, over time, you get sick of staring at the same wallpaper. It's nice if you have the opportunity to change it. Well, Wallset is a command line utility that allows you to set a video as your wallpaper. Wallset can also help you manage your wallpaper collection so you can make changes as often as you'd like just by using something like Yakwake in a drop-down terminal. And so there is, we'll have a link for you in the show notes to Wallset. They have a, 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 a tutorial on how to get it set up as well as how to add content in it. Um, really great little program I've been playing with this week. Our gadget of the week uh, is the Dell Ultrawide UltraSharp U3515W. Now, anybody who has done any serious work in front of a computer at one point or another has at least tried multiple monitors. I'd probably venture to say the vast majority of you listening to this right now work at a station with multiple monitors. But there are some issues that come up. Early on, Early on, there were issues with some of the graphics cards and, and, um, even as recently as four or five years ago, if you had the wrong kind of monitor set up with the wrong graphics card, it made it difficult to get Windows from one place to the other or that thing, desktop environments would lock up, those kinds of things. At the end of the day, it really is a compromised solution, right? That's what multiple monitors are. It's you couldn't buy a monitor big enough, and so you ganged two other monitors together. Now, in that time, we've created workspaces that can be assigned to specific monitors specific tasks that are tagged to certain monitors. And so now we've learned to kind of embrace the multi-monitor approach, but let's not forget it was born out of a inability to make monitors any bigger at that time. Well, Dell is changing that game along with a couple of other companies, but I think Dell has it down the best with their, um, with their new ultra-wide solution. And so this has been around for a couple of years. I purchased the U3415W, I believe a year ago in December. And so I've had it for a little over a year. 
It's a phenomenal monitor. I have now I've I've now become aware that they have released a 49-inch version of the same monitor. And uh, the reason I chose this as the gadget of the week is I am going through a, a little bit of a sh- uh, a shift. I'm changing away from desktops and going entirely to laptops. And so I have um I have Thunderbolt enabled laptops that I'm using now one for work and one for home. And then um as well at home I have, you know, obviously a couple other ones for doing uh, individual tasks. And what I've done is I've reworked my my battle station, my workstation so that at home I have my four Thunderbolt docks that are connected to um, displays and keyboards and mice and printers and all that kind of thing. And then I have, you know, a docking station at work and a docking station here at the radio station. And so that allows me to bounce from one place to the other um, and just take the laptop that I'm using at, at that moment and have that become a desktop environment. And so when I kind of embarked on trying to make some of this transitions, one of the first things I was doing was testing various different setups to see uh, when I go to do this, what is the default monitor I should buy? What keyboard should I buy? What mouse should I buy? What monitorizer should I buy? What desk mask should I buy? Um, what standing desk should I buy? And so I've covered a couple of other of those components. Um, the Dell Ultrawide U3415W has become a staple of that docking setup because what I have found is with its 4K native resolution, 34 inches, it's it's basically the perfect size to replace two 1080p monitors. And it looks fantastic, and it functions fantastic. And the thing that separates Dell's professional line of monitors from some of the cheaper alternatives that I see on being sold at Best Buy and Amazon, you have to make sure to look at the resolution. You know, a lot of these monitors, they're claiming to be ultra-wide, they're claiming to be 34 inches, but then you look, and it's a 1080p monitor. Or it's... Uh, it's 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 1080p down and then they just stretch the you know the the um the uh horizontal axis uh so it, it you're not really getting a lot more desktop real estate and so i kind of have a rule of thumb i follow at 27 inches or larger i want a 4k monitor in that 19 to 22 um, range, that's where I like to see 1080p at a minimum. And then from 22 to 27, that's kind of a middle ground. Sometimes they go 1080, sometimes uh, 2K, just depending on what the user wants and what's right for that environment. Um, but the, with these Dell ultra-wide monitors, man, I tell you, I being able to just purchase one and say, okay, here's the monitor I use. And I have one display port cable that runs from my monitor to my dock. And, uh, and everything else is kind of handled for me. USB ports on the side of the monitor, matte display, goes right out to the edge. That infinity light display uses a standard IEC power cord instead of the some stupid external power brick. The ability to slide up and down the monitor on a stand so you can adjust the height. Uh, uh, for those of you who that are into ergonomics, remember you want your feet flat on the floor. You want to sit upright. You want your eyes to hit the top third of the display. You should be looking just a little bit. You should be able to just, just see over your display. If you kind of look at it, um, when you're sitting at your display, it's easy to look down, very difficult and 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 very harming to your back and your neck to be straining looking up. Um, and so, you know, these Dell, both the P-Series and the Ultra-Wides ultra, ultra wides, uh, all offer uh, these very nice stands that, by the way, do not cost $1,000. They just come free with the monitor. Um, and the, the, the display can slide up or down. Behind the stand, if you take the monitor off the stand, you'll notice that it's one button and you push the button and the, the monitor comes completely off the stand. So you don't have this screw in the bottom nonsense and then you know screw on the back and little plastic covers to cover up the cable none of that nonsense you just set the monitor on the stand it clicks in it's good you push the button it comes back out behind that you will find four screws for mounting the monitor to a mountain so if you've ever got purchased a mount and you've rolled out the little 
hot dog look of of uh, of cellophane wrap that has you know 19 different packs of screws all in different sizes. You go, well, we'll start with these and see if those work. And then you start to ask yourself, I wonder what quality these little Chinese screws that are included with this mount. I, you know, none of that. It's it's it comes with the monitor. And so the screws that are the exact right thread and pitch and depth and all that stuff uh, come with the monitor. So a uh, really, really great job execution done to Dell. Um, probably the the monitor I will be purchasing by default uh, going forward. In the news this week, the uh, LibreOffice is up for discussion, and essentially there has been a kerfluffle that required the Document Foundation's board to issue a statement about what was going on. And so essentially there was a tagline of personal edition, and this was part of a, of, of a code commit. And so what happened was a lot of people looked at that and said, wait a minute, there isn't a personal edition, uh, commercial edition, what, what are you talking about? So they went on to explain that this personal edition uh, tagline is part of a wider five-year marketing plan, and they're preparing and had the purpose of differentiating the current free and community-supported LibreOffice from an enterprise version of LibreOffice provided by members of their ecosystem. And the statement said, and I quote, none of the changes being evaluated will affect the license, the availability, or the permitted uses or functionality, LibreOffice will continue to be a free software and nothing has changed for end users, developers, and community members. So they want to make that real clear. So I want to make that real clear that nothing is changing yet. But what what they are trying to deal with is this idea that we have become accustomed to free software because it's free and open source should be free as in beer. And of course, that's not accurate. Um, why would it be bad to charge for software? If you've done good work, you deserve to be paid for it. And as long as the source code is available... All of the things, all of the benefits that we talk about with open source, security, auditing, not vendor lock-in, those kinds of things, all become real benefits. It doesn't mean the developer shouldn't be paid for their work. Um, they cite that nearly 70% of the changes to LibreOffice come from developers paid by ecosystem companies, and those companies pay about 40 people to work on LibreOffice. So here's where I think it's decision time for us, the open source community. You have to make a decision tonight. Do you want an alternative to G Suite and Office 365? Are you willing to pay the equivalent to $12.50 per user per month? Because that's what it costs to maintain a large Office suite. And Microsoft is doing that. Google is doing that. And now we're going to start to enter in discussions about some open source companies doing that. And if you're not prepared to write that check, then it fundamentally puts us at a disadvantage going into this discussion. So there was a lengthy post called Some Problems by Project co-founder Michael Meeks, and he explained why revenue is a problem and why it's not coming in. Now, well, I'll read the quote. It is routinely the case that I meet organizations that have deployed free LibreOffice without long-term support with the security updates, etc. Try a cabinet office in the UK at the center of the UK government or a large European government division I recently visited. 15,000 seats. Some great floss enthusiasm, but simple, no conceptual frame of deploying unsupported floss in the enterprise hurts the software that they rely on. And he goes on to say that there is a problem when people take this software. Well, yeah, again, I'll just read his quote. The problem is compounded by companies that sell inexpensive, quote unquote, support for LibreOffice, but they're not involved in its development or all and not really able to provide that support. These companies simply file tickets upstream and hope that their problems are fixed for free. Okay. I got to stop right there and just say, I'm guilty of that. I am. I'll raise my hand. I'm guilty of that. I'm the guy that does that. I'm the guy that goes out and says, I will help you uh, 
work through the problems because 95% of providing quote-unquote support for LibreOffice is showing people where the buttons are. It's very, very rare that something doesn't work in LibreOffice. It's been around long enough, and it's based upon a mature enough code base that that's not really the issue we run into where there's some bug that you know has to be fixed. But on occasion, on occasion, that does happen. And what I've been told by the open source community is, hey, when you have a problem, file a bug ticket. So just understand that ticket alerts to your project to a problem, when I come in and fill out a ticket or I pay somebody most of the time to go through and troubleshoot the issue, find all of the steps to reproduce it, file that into a ticket, that's not my job to begin with, is to collect all of that information for your product. Now, my understanding up until this point was you needed people to help you identify problems so that people could could uh, volunteer their time um, to help fix things. I'm more than willing to pay for support. Just understand that if I'm paying you to fix an issue, then I then I, then there are some expectations that come along with that. I, there is an expectation that there's going to be a developer available. There's an expectation that there's going to be a price per hour to get a, a, a bug fixed. There's an expectation that that bug will have be resolved in a certain amount of time because now I'm charging customers as a business owner. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the money that I'm being charged. And I'm going to pass that off to the customer, which I'd be more than willing to do. But just understand that customers' expectations are set by companies like Microsoft, Office 365, and Google with G Suite. So, if you want to go down that route of here's how G Suite and and um, Office 365 are funded, you just better be ready to provide similar support. I get that an open source project is not going to be able to provide support in the same level that Microsoft or uh, or Google do, but at the same time, if you're going to tell me that we're looking for money, then you better be prepared to deliver something for that money. Quote, as we look around the industry, we see tons of organizations exploring ways to solve similar problems. LibreOffice is particularly challenging because we aspire to be a vendor, a vendor neutral project. There are reasonably well-known ways to build a company controlled branded floss project. We know and love lots of them, OpenSUSE, Fedora, NextCloud, OwnCloud, etc. This is the norm. With the Document Foundation, we tried to do something far harder, to create a vendor-neutral ecosystem that can help retain community spirit while delivering on our mission. That has proved to be extraordinarily hard. And so, essentially, what they've laid out is a five-year plan. They're going to have LibreOffice Engine, which is a term to distinguish the core LibreOffice code from those, that are, from, from those other entities that are related to LibreOffice and selling things based on LibreOffice. They're going to have the personal edition, which will be free forever um, but, and available directly from the Document Foundation. And then they're going to look at LibreOffice Enterprise. And LibreOffice Enterprise and LibreOffice Online seems to be where the place where a lot of tensions reside. And uh, uh, essentially, this is because a lot of companies want to keep LibreOffice Online to themselves. And that, of course, threatens to disrupt all the volunteer part of the development, because who wants to work for on a project where the all of the control is held from above? And so the plan involves the same split between personal and enterprise, but adds that there is going to be like a like a month gap in between the release of the two versions. So LibreOffice Online and Enterprise and LibreOffice Online Personal. And so the the hope anyway is that that gives the true ecosystem members, the people that are doing it the quote unquote right way, something attractive to sell and build onto and et cetera, um, and does not compete with the LibreOffice offering. And so we'll continue to keep an eye on that. It's it's it seems like it might be 
a lot over absolutely nothing. And so I, I would encourage everybody to hold off just a little bit before we turn into Pitchfork Nation about it. LibreOffice has done a lot of work to get out of the shadow of OpenOffice, and I, I, I would hate to see anything bad happen. They've become one of the largest open source office suites, if not the largest provider of open source office suites out there. And so a huge thanks to all the work that they're doing. I hope this is successful. I want developers to make money. I would like to be a part of helping developers make money. Lay out a path for me to do that. Flutter, Mac is moving towards the way of iOS. Windows is moving the way of software service with Azure. So really the way that we target people today is with Android and iOS. And these are becoming the de facto platforms if you want your people to use your service or product. So enter Flutter. Flutter is Google's UI toolkit for building beautiful natively compiled applications for mobile, web, desktop, all from a single code base. Now, last year, Google announced that they're going to provide desktop class, class app support or Flutter. They are going to try to target the idea of making desktop apps. Uh, Canonical jumped right on board and they said, hey, we should be on that boat. And so once again, Canonical makes a very clear and decisive, uh, takes clear and decisive action to make it easy for app developers to push their apps. And, and decisions like this are what make me question when people say that Canonical has given up on, on, on desktop Linux. I don't see that at all from the actions that they've taken, to be honest with you. This is what they did with Electron. This is what they did with Snaps. Now they're doing it with Flutter. This seems like a very consistent, uh, a very consistent message Canonical is sending us that they are interested in being on the cutting edge of desktop development. Quote, Canonical is making significant investments in Flutter by dedicating a team of developers to work alongside Google's developers to bring the best Flutter experience to the majority of Linux distributions. And so you can download the Flutter SDK Linux as a snap in the snap store, I actually downloaded my first Flutter application. It's called Flock. It's a contact syncing application that syncs your contacts from Google uh, down to a native app. And it is phenomenal. And so the fact that once again, Canonical seems to be on the cutting edge of, hey, this is a new way to get a desk, a, a desktop application in there. Canonical's going to make sure that they're on that boat and that Linux is treated uh, as the same citizen as macOS or Windows moving forward. There's not much Canonical can do to go back and get all of these applications, some of which we rely on, that have been native code on Windows or Mac for years. But going forward, they they obviously see what I think I and everybody else in the tech space sees. And the reality is that if you are making software in 2020, you are going to try to target as many different platforms as you want, understanding that the primary two you want to hit is Android and iOS. And and so if you can develop a, a software ecosystem and a, so, and, a, and a code base that can scale to every device, no matter what device or operating system you're on, then you win. And Canonical is making sure that Linux has a, 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 a front row seat to that party. So thank you, Canonical. We appreciate that. All right, Frank Frank Kalachek is uh, one of the project leads for Nextcloud, and he joins us this hour to talk about Nextcloud and some of the latest developments. If you haven't been following along, every couple of months something really great comes down the pipe from Nextcloud, and every time I play with it, I am really surprised at how great it is. My latest revelation was Nextcloud Talk. I've been addicted to it because it's so good. Nextcloud is literally becoming your self-hosted office in a box. So I wanted to invite Frank to come on the program and share. Uh, what's coming up in Nextcloud and and how Nextcloud has kind of pivoted to become this uh, solution in a post-COVID world. 
So, Frank, what are your what are let's start with Nextcloud Talk. This is the latest feature that I've come across in Nextcloud that again blew me away. It's 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 awesome. You're taking on Rocket Chat and Slack and Mattermost. Um, what what talk about Nextcloud Talk and what it is you're hoping to achieve with it and how it's been received so far? Sure, sure, sure. So, um, Nextcloud overall, um, the mission of Nextcloud is to have an alternative to these big cloud services, 100% open source and 100% uh, on-premise hosted wherever you want. And um, as you know, we started with files, so the files you can share, um, and that's something that we working on for many, many years, and this is quite stable and popular and nice. Um, but then uh, we decided to also um, try to solve other areas, for example, communication, chat and video calling, which is something that's also usually um, provided by these big cloud services, I mean, Zoom or WebEx or Microsoft Teams and so on, that are popular uh, solutions here, but they're all like um, software as a service, they're not open source, they're not self-hosted, and we try to be the alternative for that. So if you want to chat with people, group chat or one-on-one chat, audio, video calling, but uh, everything through um, WebRTC, open standards, with your phone, um, with your colleagues, with your family. So this is what we try to do here with Nextcloud Talk. And yeah, it was it's it's really popular. It's really growing because it is so super easy to use and to set up. I mean, same as with the rest of Nextcloud, you can you just some some web host. You just take the zip file, unpack it there, and then it's already working. And that's also the same for the for the Nextcloud Talk. So video. Audio calling works like out of the box. You don't have to configure complicated demons, special ports, special whatever systems. It works out of the box. And this is was the goal. And it's it's growing in popularity because of this ease of use. Is there any way to use Nextcloud Talk without a Nextcloud account? Like let's say, for example, I want to invite a guest or somebody that I uh, need a meeting with, but they don't work for my company. Is there a way to get them to interface with Nextcloud Talk without having them register for an account? Oh, 100%, 100%. So you can uh, just um, go into your Nextcloud Talk, then you create a new conversation, a new room or something, and then there is already directly the option to allow guests, and then you can copy a link that you can send to someone, and uh, you can protect it with an additional password or not, just the link, um, or you just type in the email address directly into Nextcloud Talk, and the Nextcloud sends the invitation link, and the person clicks on the link, and then it's directly into the conversation. Um, and nowadays, this also works with all browsers. So with Chrome, Chromium, Firefox, um, we also have um, support for Safari and the uh, new Microsoft Edge because it's um, based on Chrome now is also supported. So basically it doesn't matter with what browser the guest clicks on the link, it's the guest is directly in the conversation. How about having a persistent meeting or a persistent link? Is there a way to specify, uh, you know, a persistent link address so that the, the link is the same every time and, you know, for maybe organizations that have a weekly meeting, something like that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It is. It, it, the, the usual way is that it is persistent. The the the, the room is there forever um, until the one of the moderator decides to delete it, and then it's gone. But beside that, uh, it's always there. So the chat is persistent, and everybody in the room can start a meeting at any time if they have the permission. Have you looked into bridging Nextcloud Talk, or has anybody else looked into bridging Nextcloud Cloud? With uh, maybe something like Matrix, I know Matrix is an open source communications platform. Has there any been, been any work, or are there any plans mm-hmm. to do something like that? Absolutely. So we are talking with uh, Matrix uh, people for um, for months and years. Basically, we had already several in person meetings, and we are working on an integration 
um, because like metrics has this nice uh, concept of uh, bridges um, and we have the same so this is absolutely the idea so we're trying to do that Talk the same for other the same for other protocols by the way xmpp or irc they're sometimes a bit more complicated because it sometimes work a little bit different um, but we this is absolutely the plan to bridge to those services Talk to me a little bit about the integration with Outlook. This was something that kind of caught me off guard. I, you typically don't see a lot of open source integration with heavy Microsoft <laughs> products, but at the same time, Frank, we know that businesses yeah. are very Microsoft heavy sometimes. And of course, there's, we want to encourage them to own their own data and use open source tools like Nextcloud. Mm. So the fact that there is integration is exciting to me. What is the Outlook integration and how does it work? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I completely agree. So Outlook is something that it's usually used in the business world. That's is what the normal contributor community we have don't, doesn't really care about. But um, as you said, it's very important um, to be attractive to companies. And this is why, why we did it. I mean, to be fair, we didn't really do it ourselves, but there's a partner company who developed this Outlook integration and we fully support this and our business customers are really happy that it exists. Uh, the way it works is it is a plugin that you have to um, install um, on your desktop if you're running Outlook. Um, and then you can basically um, create a new, start a new mail and you just drag this whatever... 20 gigabyte movie file as an attachment into your mail and press send. And then in the background, it uploads the attachment to your next cloud, creates a share link, puts the share link into the mail and then sends the mail. So this has several advantages. First of all, you don't have any size limitations anymore with attachments. You can just send everything. Um, and because the attachment is done on your next cloud server, you can see in the activities and in the auditing log, uh, once the person uh, clicked on it, and you can also delete it later if you want. If you say, no, no, this was a mistake, then you can basically like remove the attachment from the message, basically. It's something you usually can't do. You talk about the plugins and uh, how easy they are to install. Talk about some of the most popular plugins that people are using on their Nextcloud instance and what those plugins do. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting thing because I still remember when uh, in the very first meeting, like close to 10 years ago, where the original community came together and we discussed, hey, what features do we want to do? I still remember where I said that uh, we shouldn't do any groupware features. We shouldn't care about calendar and contacts and email and this stuff because there is already open source groupware out there. So we should not try to reinvent uh, the, the world here, the wheel. Um, but of course, um, the community the community completely ignored me, <laughs> which is fine. And uh, we basically had a calendar and contacts and all these groupware features for a long time. And they are the most popular extensions. And for a long time, I was surprised why um, people like their next cloud um, to synchronize your calendar and you don't really use like a full groupware. But then over time, I realized that this full open source groupware systems out there are often not that great. They are sometimes really complicated, especially to configure and to run. And um, yeah, the calendar is super popular because it just works out of the box super easily. Are there any plans or have you considered uh, at some point making some of these groupware features a native part of Nextcloud? Um, is that, you know, obviously it, it's clear to me that Nextcloud is, be, is quickly becoming 
a standalone resource for businesses, small businesses, large businesses who want to own their own data. Could you see adding groupware, uh, a groupware component as part of the native featuring? Mm -hmm. So that's basically what we did with uh, the Nextcloud Hub announcement early this year. So because uh, for the first 10 years, um, Nextcloud was basically a file sync and share solution where you can synchronize and share your files. And then you had these additional plugins, like I said, talk for video and audio and calendar and contacts and email and notes and RSS reader and so on and so on. Um, and we basically, with our 18 release, Nextcloud Hub, early this year, we changed our positioning in a way that we are no longer FileSync and SharePlus plugins, but we basically decided to make all these other components first-class citizens. So if you install a new uh, Nextcloud, it's then called Nextcloud Hub, and the calendar and context emails comes out of the box. So this is no longer just a weird third-party plugin, but it's like core of Nextcloud now. A lot of people have not heard of a Kanban board. Uh, it is, it's very similar to what Trello is doing. Nextcloud now offers a lot of, uh, makes it very easy to deploy and very easy to use. Talk about the Kanban board feature of, ne of, of Nextcloud and how that works. Yeah, that's a similar story to the calendar, I have to say. <laughs> because at the beginning, I thought, well, yeah, it's a nice feature, agile software development, right? That's like Scrum and, and, and these things that become more and more popular. And for that, you need this kind of Kanban board. But hey, it's not really core functionality of Nextcloud. And it's a bit like a weird extension. Who cares? But then over time, it became clear that it becomes a really, really super popular feature. So this really becomes one of the core features of Nextcloud now. And I mean, in the meantime, we also hired uh, the main developer of this um, app, uh, of the DAC app of this extension, works full-time for Nextcloud now. And um, yeah, this Kanban board, Nextcloud DAC, becomes a real super popular, useful feature now. It's similar to Calendar, where I... Um, <laughs> try to convince the community that let's focus on the core features, but well, that just do what's useful for them. And well, what's useful is and also useful for other people. Talk a little bit about how you recommend people run Nextcloud. Obviously, there are people that call into this show all the time and ask, hey, I'm looking at setting up Nextcloud. What do I have to be conscious uh, for security and privacy? Can you just spin it up on a DigitalOcean droplet and run it on a VM wide open to the Internet? Or does it need to be running on a server behind a VPN? And what kind of considera security consideration should you take into mind when making that decision? Mm. Yeah, there, there are different things to consider. Um, first, there's the performance, of course, and Nextcloud is is really fast nowadays, so you don't really need a lot of resources for that. You can, I mean, some people even run it on a Raspberry Pi at home. I mean, it doesn't work for like for a hundred people, but it's still fine for a few people. And if it's just a, a digital ocean um, um, instance or something small on some other provider, some Linode or some Amazon, whatever, some infrastructure, it's usually totally fast enough. And if you need more resources, you can always add like a little bit more RAM or something, and that's usually totally fine. But you really ask about the security. So Nextcloud is really built to be uh, run directly on the internet. There is no real need to have an additional firewall in front of it. I mean, you can if you want uh, for additional hardenings. That's that's something you can do, but it's really designed for 
being operated directly on the internet and we invest a lot of time and resources to make it really secure. For example, we have a bug bounty program, so we pay everybody who finds a serious security problem in Nextcloud 10,000 euros or you know, dollars actually. Um, and we haven't really, we didn't, there was no instance so far that we really had to pay it because then no one found like a serious problem so far. And we have like lots of things like, uh, like a machine learning detection of, uh, of, uh, of wrong logins, two factor authentication, auditing logs. So we, we really invest a lot of energy to make it really secure. So we can just put it on the internet and it's fine. The only thing you really should do is to update it constantly. We really should not run like, uh, like totally outdated software. But beside that, Nextcloud is really secure and fine. I'd like to dig in a little bit to the two-factor authentication. What kind of two-factor authentication um, is, is supported by Nextcloud? Any of, any of the little hardware tokens, do you support any of those or any plans to? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do. Um, we support this uh, FIDO2 um, standard nowadays. So this works with a lot of those um, um, second-factor USB keys that you can buy nowadays. This works fine. Of course, we have the usual two-factor via SMS or via email or via push notification to one of your other clients. Uh, this uh, TOTP is uh, super popular. Um, this is also very secure. You have this one of those small apps on your phone um, with this one-time password. Um, then lots and lots of different options. We also support now in the latest version this um, this WebAuthn standard. So this is like this passwordless authentication. So that's something um, that works together with uh, Microsoft Hello. So if you're authenticated through your uh, Windows somehow with a fingerprint reader or something, then we can read this information through this open standard and then you're directly logged into Nextcloud. And just um, just uh, was funny that yesterday I read that even Apple, now in the upcoming iOS um, 14, I think, release that I introduced like two days ago, they also support the same standard. So in the future, you can log into your next cloud just with your face ID on your phone too. So really support a lot of those open standards. That's fantastic. Talk a little bit about NextCloud Enterprise. What is NextCloud Enterprise and who is that right for? Mm. That's an excellent question. <laughs> so um, the thing is that NextCloud is an open source project. So it's 100% open source. There are no proprietary pieces. It's uh, done, uh, it's developed like in big pieces by um, employees of the Nextcloud company. But we also have like thousands of volunteers who also um, help to extend it and develop it further. Um, and of course, this raises the question, that's all nice and great, but how does the Nextcloud company make any money? Uh, how can we actually pay the developers? And uh, Nextcloud, the company, is already over 50 people now, and we employ, I, I don't know, 25, 26, 27 developers full-time to work on Nextcloud. And of course, well, we need um, some some uh, revenue for, for that, obviously. And we do this with Nextcloud Enterprise. So Nextcloud Enterprise is a thing that we sell uh, to bigger companies. Um, because if you're like a bigger enterprise or a government or a big university or a big service provider, then you usually need a few more things um, to run Nextcloud than just a zip file you can download from the website. You maybe want to have uh, a workshop with someone to... Um, 
to ask questions, how to scale it, how to secure it. Maybe you want to have a guarantee um, that you get security patches in a certain time. Maybe you want to have long-term support for the software for several years that you basically can call someone and you can guarantee, you have the guarantee that uh, someone helps you if your mission critical system is offline or something. Maybe you have some feature requests. Maybe you want to have influence on the roadmap. Maybe you have like just some urgent bug that you need to prioritize somehow. Uh, maybe you have special certification or special packaging or special documentation. Basically, you have all these special requirements that you have if you're, if you're a big organization. And this is everything together, this bundle of all the pieces together, we call this Nextcloud Enterprise. And that's what we sell. So Nextcloud Enterprise is not really different software. It's basically the same software, but it comes together with other, other pieces around it to make it like a package um, so that you can run it in a mission-critical environment in your company. Talk a little bit about federation and what federation is and how that works for people. Um, you're essentially building a network of NextCloud instances. Talk a little bit about that. Mm, correct. So um, the main idea, I mean, when I started this whole this whole idea like 10 years ago, the main idea was to decentralize the Internet again. Because there we, we saw that uh, while well, we had this old world, well, mail servers, everybody can run mail server, everybody can run an FTP server, everybody can run a website, uh, everybody can run a Windows file server and so on. This is the old world, decentralized. But the new world, this cloud services like Dropbox and Google services and stuff like that, you can't really run them themselves. So you can only use them as a service. And they exist only once, operated and controlled by this one company who owns it. And I always thought that this is not a really good idea. I really want to have like people in control, have, have everything decentralized and federated. And this was the, this, the number one design goal of, of the software from the very beginning. Um, it has basically has two components. First of all, you need to host it yourself. I mean, we already talked about that. That's quite easy. Um, but then these different instances need to be able to talk to each other. This is the federation part. So very early we implemented federation features where you can do federated sharing. Um, so let's say you're in, you're logged into your next cloud on your, um, some instance or some provider or at home. And there you have a picture or a movie or something, or a word file, and you want to share this with someone and you can just go, um, click the share button and there you can find all the people on the same server or you can uh, send out share links to everybody but there you can also share to a person on a different instance and for that we need an identifier it looks a little bit different like an email address it's username at and then the url of the other nextcloud server and you type this in <clears throat> and then my nextcloud server talks to your nextcloud server and say hey here someone wants to share this file with or, or this folder or whatever with you um, you can accept it then, and then our two servers that talk to each other, and this resource is then shared between the servers. Um, and all of that works without a central instance. So no one really owns this system. It becomes then a network, a peer-to-peer -peer network of different um, Nextcloud servers talking to each other. And that's the idea of a decentralized internet, and that's the number one goal of everything we do here. 
you have talked about how easy it is to deploy NextCloud, and, and I would have to agree, particularly as it relates to the Snap package that is now available. It's literally as simple as spinning up an Ubuntu server and Snap install uh, NextCloud. Is that the recommended way to, to, to go about a NextCloud deployment, though? Uh, I don't think we have a recommended way. There are lots of different ways, and they're all good for different use cases. So we have super good relations with the Ubuntu community and with Canonical, and this is why we maintain this Snap together. And it's actually super cool because um, if you install an Ubuntu uh, server, not a desktop, but a server package nowadays, I think after after logging in for the first time, you get this nice menu where the system asks you, hey, what do you want to do here? Do you want to be a mail server or a file server or a web server? And then I think it might be even one of the top suggestions is to, hey, do you want to have this, should this be a Nextcloud server? And you just say yes, and then the snap is downloaded and configured and running, and then you have your Nextcloud server. I mean, it really couldn't be easier than that. That's super nice. And this is, this is, I would say this is recommended if you uh, like an Ubuntu server. But of course, if you have other Linux operating systems, there are lots of other ways. You can run it as a Docker container. You can run it as a VM. You can run it natively. Um, lots and lots of different options. I mean, you can run it in a Kubernetes environment with different automatically starting and stopping um, um, application service and database backends and it, it automatically make it scale up to, to lots and lots of users or just like as an RPM on your Raspberry Pi. I, I, I don't think there's a recommended way, but lots of options. Unfortunately, you have to choose. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about backing up NextCloud and the NextCloud data. With so many different ways to install, is there a standard way to go about backing up your data to make sure that it stays safe in the event that the server crashes? Mm. That's an excellent question. Um, I have to be a little bit more technical here, uh, but I think your audience is also technical, so this might be fine. So uh, NextCloud um, stores um, important data in different places. Um, there are actually three things you need to pick up. First is the storage, which is usually in a normal setup is the data directory, or maybe if you use an object store backend, then it would be your S3 uh, server, like your Ceph server or whatever you use. Um, then the second thing you need to back up is the database. So this from a tiny instance, this can be an SQLite database, just one file, or MariaDB, MySQL, Postgres server. And the third thing you need to back up is uh, the config file, because the config file also contains important data like passwords of the database or password salts and something like that. So those three things you need to be you need to back up. So the um, the naive way, the the super um, simplistic way to back it up is to stop your Nextcloud server or put it into read-only mode, copy the data directory, make a database dump. And, uh, and copy your config uh, file. And then after you're done, you can start your Nextcloud server again. This has the drawback that there is a little bit of downtime. It's totally fine for a small instance, but if you want to write like 24-7 without any downtime, that's not cool. And for that, there are other methods where you can work with uh, snapshotting um, your storage, for example, or you can also back up a database um, without, um, without stopping it. So there are ways, it's, it's actually documented in our documentation, 
where you can also back up the next load um, during um, operations. Or maybe you have a downtime of one second while you create a snapshot or something. But um, yeah, there are different ways. So if I if I install the snap package and I'm I'm just running or I I use the automated installer from the Ubuntu server option uh, essentially what I'm looking to do is is back up that data directory copy the config and copy the the uh, and do a database dump where is the data directory by default in Linux The data directory is like in uh in the Nextcloud um folder itself um that's just the reason for that is it's basically the place where we know that it always exists, right? I mean, there is inside Nextcloud is then the data directory of Nextcloud. But of course, there's also a way to put it anywhere you want. Uh, you can specify the path in the config file, put a data directory anywhere you want. Um, I think if you control your system a little bit and you know what you're doing, it would be recommended to move it somewhere else and just change the setting in the config file and then it's, then it's okay. Do you have any clients or is is there any recommendation against uh, perhaps using something like an NFS share to store all of the data on so maybe the maybe the data directory is 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 an is actually an NFS mount over mm-hmm. to like a FreeNAS box that's running ZFS with replication is is that something that is is recommended or is there any reason why you yep. wouldn't want to do that No no absolutely um because if the data directory is a native directory I mean it obviously only works if you have one application server but once you have more application servers, let's say if you have 10 application servers, you need to find a way to share the storage between all of them somehow. And a very, very typical way is um, to have the directory and an NFS mount that is served by something like another Linux box or Ceph or whatever you have. Um, that's recommended. Another way would be to use an object store, which is also then comes from a, from a, different, uh, from a different machine or a cluster. Frank, what's coming up next with Nextcloud? Obviously, all the every time I turn around, every time I go over to Nextcloud or I download the latest version, I'm I'm surprised by something. The latest thing that I was just really blown away with the with the quality, the ease of use, and the functionality of Nextcloud Talk. It was just fantastic. What can I look forward to coming up? <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think we have any concrete features that they, they can talk about now. But the direction, I think, is pretty clear. Uh, the direction is um, that we always constantly try to push the usability and the ease of use forward. So every time, just today, I had another brainstorming discussion with some of my colleagues to make it even easier. And I mean, I think Nextload is pretty easy to use already, but we always try to make it easier. Then second thing is we always try to make it more secure. So I said that we already introduced like this two-factor and uh, suspicious login um, protection and, and password policy and, and other things to make it more secure and there will be more in this direction. And then last but not least is, of course, also the features and functionalities. I mean, um, I think Nextcloud can do like most of the stuff that Office 365 or G Suite or Dropbox and all the others can do. I mean, we are really like on the same level, in my opinion. It's from a functionality perspective, it's really good. But of course, the, the world is not standing still. Um, so we tr- always try to do new and interesting things. One area that's for me personally very exciting is really uh, around machine learning. So with machine learning, we can really um, suggest data and communication to the users so that they basically see what they want to see and are not overwhelmed by all the data and the communication. I mean, just like a few days ago, we launched a new version of the mail app, 
um, is our web interface for mail similar to Gmail. And there we introduced a, like a, a machine learning feature where you have a priority inbox. So in the next cloud can learn what mails are important for you and which mails are not important. And for the important ones, it shows them on top, basically. And for that, we use uh, machine learning. Um, it's a real neural network that's running as part of, of, of Nextcloud here. And I find this very cool because a lot of people think that, yeah, machine learning, this is something only the huge cloud providers can do. And, but it's not true. We are able, we're able to implement this as just as part of the normal Nextcloud. And again, it can run on a small instance somewhere on a Raspberry Pi. And then you have all the features of these big cloud services, um, but all the data is local. No, no data is transmitted to some cloud or to some weird data analysis service somewhere. It's all local, all open source. And, um, yeah, the plan is to do more of those machine learning features to, yeah, make the life easier for our users. Frank Kalachek, he is the founder of Nextcloud, the self-hosted productivity platform that keeps you, the user, in control. And I guess this hour on this, the Ask Noah Show. Frank, thanks so much for taking the time to be here with us. We'll get you back on the program soon. Thanks a lot. This was awesome. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, of course, live at asknoahshow.com. That's how you can be card become a part of the program. Nick J writes in and says, Hey Noah, fellow North Dakotan here listening to your latest episode with Carl. You piqued my interest when you started talking about Xiphos. To be completely honest, out of nowhere, I felt convict I, I felt convinced to create a persistent Tails USB with Bible resources like Xiphos and the Sword Project, Sermons and Music. It will mainly be a resource for my local Christian community if they were interested or if the atmosphere in the US changes towards Christians. I have been using Linux for a couple of years now, to be honest. I feel as green as where I was on the first day. There's so much to learn. I'm having some trouble with the Zypho software as well as other tools. I can't seem to get the resources loaded on them, and I think it's because of the Tails isolated environment. Would you be willing to help by responding how you chose to set up your Zypho? Thank you, and God bless, Nick J. So, yeah, actually, Nick, there's a couple of things there. First of all, or, uh, Tails is really designed to be an amnesic operating system. It's designed not to remember what you're doing. So certainly, if you wanted to access some sort of content or read some sort of content, um, Tails would be the way to do that without leaving a trace. Typically, the way that would be done is you would have something in like a PDF form um, or, or some other standard format. And the idea is that you just use the utilities that come on the on the Tails USB drive, and then um, you can use them entirely offline, not connect to the internet, those kinds of things. The What you're talking about doing, if I understand right, is basically creating a self-contained little distro with um, all of the resources that you'd want for, for a particular industry or for a particular cause. And so a, a better way to, to go about doing that might be to do something like install um, install a, 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 a minimal distro like Zubuntu or Lubuntu onto a flash drive, load uh, Zyphos, and with 2004, they don't have the, there's a library thing that needs to be changed um, before they can push to, uh, so that it's available in the repo. So for now, there's a PPA. So you have to add the PPA, you can install Zyphos that way, or you can do it as a flat pack. Either way, uh, you'll get Zyphos loaded. One of the things I like about Zyphos is the fact that the bookmarks file is basically just an XML folder. So inside of your home directory, .zyphos, 
slash bookmarks slash bookmarks.xml. That's the file that has all of your all of your bookmarks. And so if you have a list of of references that and, and, and verses that you want to link, um, you can put those in your bookmarks folder. You can copy that bookmarks file to to um, these install you know flash drives that you're making um and then once you have the first one done then you can you could simply dd them to a bunch of other drives now i'm sure that some developer will will write in and be like that's a terrible way to do it but it will work uh that's the way that that's the way that i I would go about doing that um and that will give you a full desktop environment with all of the resources um that you choose to add so that's that's what I would do. And then the way that I've set that up in my house, since you asked, is I have my, that bookmarks file is actually symlinked um, to an NFS share that's on a FreeNAS server. And so all of my bookmarks are constantly synced, and that way I can access them from any computer in the house, or I can VPN back home, uh, go ahead and mount my NFS drive, and then I have the opportunity to, uh, to get my bookmarks on the mobile. So that's a great question. Thanks for asking. Hey, that does it for this hour. Of course, the show continues 24-7, 365 over at AskNoahShow.com. Video content up at YouTube, YouTube.com slash MindDripMedia. Uh, check out the, the Linux Delta Matrix instant. That thing has been blowing up. We've added new rooms, things like the Ham Shack. We also have the Geek Shack or the Geek Lab bridged uh, to the Telegram group. So regardless of what side uh, you're on, you're able to participate in that discussion. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Huge thanks to JTR producer Sarah, our call screener. See you next week. AskNoahShow.com.